resume a study we left off several months ago, and now consider this work of God through Joseph, which goes from chapter 37 to the end of the book. Last week we spent two sermons, morning and evening, on the Eighth Commandment. Today I'd like to look at Genesis 37, and then tonight continue a bit further in our little psalm series, looking at Psalm 139, the verses about hating enemies. So if you've ever wrestled with the thought, how do we pray the psalms, the imprecatory psalms that call down cursings on enemies? How do we hate our enemies when we're called to love our enemies? Those kinds of questions, I encourage you to, to come this evening. Psalm, or excuse me, Genesis 37 begins this new section in Genesis. I like to read the entire chapter and then consider that this morning with you. Genesis 37, at verse 1, the God-breathed scriptures. Now Jacob, and remember boys and girls, Jacob also has the name Israel, and he's the one who had 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. 
Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. The Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. The end of the reading of God's word. Let's ask together for his blessing, bowing our heads together. Our Father, it's your word, your truth, it's your plan. It's your word, Lord, to convict and to make alive, to strengthen and to bless. And we pray that you would use your word today. We pray you'd help it to be preached correctly and truthfully. And that you'd give us hearts that we might be willing to be taught, uncovered, strengthened. May your spirit minister to us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, people of God, we begin this last section then of the book of Genesis. And Genesis has a very obvious structure to it because ten times over in the book of Genesis you have the language, these are the generations of. Or this is the family of. And we come now to the 10th one at verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. 
The first one we had was this is the generations, or this is the history of the heavens and the earth. And, and the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It, it tells us about our beginning. We were created by God. It tells us of, of the beginning of our troubles. We, we fell into sin. It tells us the beginning of the covenant of grace, that God came and promised to us salvation. And since that promise in Genesis 3.15, God has been working out his plan to save his people. There are some very high points in the book of Genesis, important points, like Genesis 12, where God calls Abram and he promises to make him a great nation, to make him a blessing to the world, and to give him a land, the land of Canaan. But then God also tells Abram in Genesis 15, and maybe you remember this, God told Abram that his descendants were going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years and then be brought out with great riches. And you wonder, how is that going to happen? How is it going to happen that God's people become slaves in some other land? And now we begin to see how it's going to happen. God sends Joseph down to Egypt. Well, the whole Bible is the story of redemptive history. It's all one great plan, all one great purpose. It's God working out his purpose throughout history to save a people. Throughout this whole time of history, Satan is attacking. Satan is trying to stop the plan. Satan is trying to derail the church and to prevent the Messiah from coming. And God is at work to preserve and to further his people and his plan. But the thing is, is that God's ways often seem so odd, don't they? Because in this great plan of redemptive history, there's all these twists and these turns and these things that don't seem to make sense to us. Why is this happening? And the the great surprise that we bump up against in in Genesis from chapter 37 to the end is the surprising truth that the way up to glory for the church is the way of going down. And so we have Joseph who goes down and down and down some more. He's, he's thrown down into a pit. He's sold down to the Ishmaelites. He's carried down to Egypt. He's sold into the slavery of of Potiphar and ends up down in the prison cell. And all of this as the preparation and the path by which he might be lifted up to become prime minister in Egypt and to save the family of Israel from starvation and, in fact, the world and even to save the church from her sin in a certain sense because it's through Joseph that these brothers come to repentance. It's not just Joseph that must go down. Family of Jacob, of Israel, must go down. They must go down to know their sin and sorrow. They must go down into Egypt, become slaves. And all of this is prefiguring, it's foreshadowing for us, isn't it? The path of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will come down from heaven to be born a babe in Bethlehem, who will go down to Egypt to escape from Herod, who will go down under the curse, hanging on a cross to bear our sin, so that he might be lifted up and seated upon the throne. And Christ calls all of that, all of us to that, this morning in his word, that we have to be humbled. We have to go down confessing our sin. We have to, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We have to suffer. We have to die to ourselves and follow Jesus. And the only way to glory is the way down. The Lord is teaching us these things here as he's preserving 
the line of the woman to bring forth the Christ child. And he's doing it in a way that reveals to his church that they must go down in order to go up. Let's look at that this morning here. Let's look at three points. First of all, that, that this deliverer, this chosen of the Lord is intensely hated. That's the heart of it. And then he's cruelly betrayed. That's the action. They sell him into slavery. And then he's hopelessly disregarded. They think he's done, gone forever. Those three points, intensely hated, cruelly betrayed, and then hopelessly disregarded. Well, first of all, this chosen one of the Lord, Joseph, is horribly hated. What we read of here in Genesis 37 is a highly dysfunctional family. It's not a pretty picture. And yet this is the Old Testament church, Israel, Jacob, and his 12 sons. Joseph, we're told, is 17 years old at this point. He's a junior in high school, I guess you could say. And he's out with the flocks with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Remember, Jacob has essentially four wives. He wanted to marry Rachel. He got tricked into marrying Leah. Then he married Rachel. And then when they couldn't bear children any longer, then they gave to, to Jacob their servant, their maid servant. And so he took them as concubines. So Jacob had basically four wives through whom he had children. And that's how he ended up with these 12 sons. But as Joseph is out there in the fields with the sons of, of these two concubines... Joseph discovers that these brothers of his are living in an ungodly way. They're, they're following the pattern of the Canaanites around them rather than in the way of God's covenant righteousness. And he reports this to his father, we're told. He brought a bad report of them to his father, verse 2. Now, I could tell you that many commentators take Joseph here to be a bit of a snitch and a tattletale, and he's 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 overemphasizing the, the, the faults of his brothers. But it may be something different. It may be that Joseph is the righteous one here who is grieved at what he sees. Remember, this has not been a, a family of purity. Just a couple chapters ago, Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi strapped on their swords and massacred the city, the city of Shechem, because they had violated One of them had violated their sister. And then in Genesis chapter 35, Reuben, the firstborn, had lay with his father's wife, Bilhah. And now Joseph discovers that other brothers are walking in ungodly ways. And Joseph is loyal to his father. And he tells his father what the father has a right to know, that your sons are not walking in covenant faithfulness. Joseph seems to be set apart here from the rest as as the one righteous one whose heart, because the Spirit of Christ is at work in him, he's grieved by the rebellion of his brothers. But the brothers are angry with him, and, and their dislike for Joseph is not enhanced by a second feature here, namely the favoritism that Joseph's father Jacob shows to him. We read in verse 3 that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children. And this is really a tragedy, isn't it? Because, because Jacob himself had been the product and victim of a home where there was favoritism. Remember that? That, that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that home was divided and became dysfunctional through the favoritism of parents. And Jacob should have known better. 
but he doesn't. He loves Joseph especially. Not only because he was the son of his old age, perhaps. That's what the text says. He's the son of his old age. That's why he loved him. But we might, we might add to that the fact that he was the son of, of Rachel, his beloved wife, the one he favored. Jacob was not doing well as a father. Jacob gave to Joseph a coat of many colors. That's how we traditionally speak of it, the coat of many colors. It's actually not so clear what it was. The only other place where the word is used is in 2 Samuel 13, where it refers to the kind of robe that the king's daughters wore, his virgin daughters. And so it actually, this this tunic, this, this long piece of clothing that Joseph was given by his father may actually have been symbolic of the fact that Jacob was choosing Joseph now to receive the inheritance of the firstborn. Reuben had forfeited that. Simeon and Levi, the next in line, had forfeited that. And Jacob may have well been switching horses now and said, now the inheritance, the double portion, the place of honor goes to the firstborn of my beloved wife, Rachel. But whatever the case, the brothers, when they saw the robe, are greatly irritated. We read in verse 4 that they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They hated their own brother. In fact, the text says literally they couldn't even say to him, Shalom, peace. They couldn't even say peace. They couldn't even say good morning to him. But their hatred was pushed over the top, not by Joseph, whether or not he was a bit of a tattletale, not by Jacob and his his bad favoritism as a father, but their jealousy is ultimately pushed into murder by what? By God. They're provoked, thirdly, by the dreams that God sends. Joseph tells his brothers about the dream. We were out there gathering in our our bundles of grain, our sheaves. Well, mine stood upright and yours bowed down. And then another dream. The 11 stars, the sun and moon bowed down to me. His brothers are envious of this and his father rebukes him, but his father keeps it in mind. If his brothers thought these dreams were just today as we have dreams, silly dreams that don't mean much, they would have just laughed it off or turned away in disgust, but they envy him because I think they know God is speaking through the dreams. And they seem to sense that whatever injustice Father Jacob, Israel, has done to them by, being, by having a favorite son, whatever injustice their father has done to him, the Lord God actually is choosing Joseph over us for a special task. And so they hate Joseph for it. As you read all of this, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that, that the book of Genesis was penned by Moses, And its first audience was the Israelites in the wilderness. So you can imagine the Israelites coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, and hearing read to them Genesis 37, and they're hearing their own family history. Those who call themselves Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Reuben and Simeon, all these tribes are hearing their family history being read to them. What do they see? They see we were rebellious from the start. 
we hated our brother. And though we recognize God was choosing Joseph, one among us, we refused to bow to the way of the Lord, and we took it out on Joseph. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's often the way it goes. When, when Cain's offering, at the beginning of time, when Cain's offering was, was rejected, Cain's problem was with God, but he took out his anger on Abel, killed him. Fast forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jesus comes from the Father, and the Jews pretend to love God, but they actually hate God, and they take it out on Jesus. They envied him, Mark 15 tells us. You know, sometimes when we're, when we're angry at someone, we do well to ask the question, who am I really angry at? Who am I really angry at? You meet people in this world sometimes whose anger seems so, so unprovoked, whose anger seems so disproportionate. And you, you say to yourself, I think they're angry at God. Well, that can be all of us, can't it? Children sometimes angry at their parents, but they're really angry at God's providence in their life. People can be angry at elders or angry at the preacher preaching, but sometimes they're really angry that God, that God would say they're living wrong. Maybe we are envious of someone who's been richly blessed in some way with financial or business success or family or something, but who are we really angry at? Who are we really envying? Maybe we're upset with somebody who exposes us by their godly life. The scripture humbles God's people and brings them low, brings us squarely before the face of God. We have to get low before him. But another way God brings us low is that we're not just like Joseph's brothers at times, are we? But we're also, we're like Joseph himself. We become the object of other people's scorn. And Jesus said if they hated him, they would hate us. And it's true that that Christians become the object of the world's hatred because Christ is hated. And it's not to surprise us when we're called self-righteous or intolerant or bigots or worse. The hatred for God gets taken out against men. And all of this were brought low. We're brought low through intense hatred. hatred. But secondly, this morning, I would draw your attention to the fact that, that this hatred of the heart becomes now an action, as we see that the Lord's deliverer is, is heartlessly betrayed now. At verse 12, we come to a, a new setting in the, in the chapter. Joseph's brothers are at Shechem, some 45 or 50 miles away from the valley of Hebron. And they're taking care of the flocks. They've gone out there to find pasture, presumably. And, and Jacob says to Joseph that he wants to send him there. And Joseph responds in verse 13, here I am. Here I am, send me. He's willing to go. He's obedient. And then his father says, verse 14, please go and see if it is well with you. Excuse me, if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks. And literally, he says, go see if there is shalom. Go see if there's peace. Go see if all is well. 
Now, to the brothers who could not speak shalom to Joseph, Joseph is supposed to go and ask them, how is their shalom? It's an asking a lot of Joseph, isn't it? We wonder, what was Father Jacob thinking? Was he oblivious to all this, this animosity in his own home? What was Joseph thinking? He must have known this might be, a, in some way, a dangerous mission, unless he's completely naive. But Joseph goes obediently at the mere asking of his father, and he goes with all of his heart because he gets to Shechem, and he can't find his brothers, and he doesn't say, oh, they're not here, and goes home. No, he, he looks for them, and he looks for them long enough that a man finds him and says, who are you looking for? And, and the man tells him, actually, they've gone 15 miles further. And Joseph goes another 15 miles all the way to Dothan to find them. Joseph is a obedient, a responsible, a loyal son. But his brothers recognize him before he gets there. Verse 19, they say, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Reuben delivers him out of their hands, says, let's just put him in a pit. Let's just put him in a pit. And when Joseph comes, they grab Joseph and they strip him of that robe, that robe that had been such an irritant as an emblem of his father's love for him. They pull that honor off him, they throw him into a pit, and then we read, what do they do? They sit down and eat. And the Spirit reveals to us here the callousness of their hearts. They've just plotted a murder, and they sit down for supper or for some lunch. Then they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming, and they have this idea to sell him rather than to kill him, and they can make some money. He'll be as good as dead, and we'll be richer for it. Now, what is all this about? This is about some horribly acted out, essentially a murder of a brother. It's interesting that if you read through this chapter and circle how many times the word brother is used, you end up with, I think, more than 20 times the word brother being used. As if the Holy Spirit is saying, do you see how cruel this is? Do you see how ungodly this is? It's brother-on-brother violence. Later in Genesis, when the brothers in chapter 42 are brought to stand before Joseph down in Egypt... And they don't know it's Joseph yet. Remember, and all these bad things are happening to them, and they're, and they're very troubled. Then the brothers said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Well, that's a window into what goes on here in chapter 37. Joseph is pleading with them. You can imagine his pleading when they grab him as he arrives, as they strip him, as they throw him into a pit. My brothers, what are you doing? What, what is this? What's going on here? And then when he's pulled out of the pit and the shackles are going on, the Ishmaelites are binding him to take him to Egypt. Imagine the tears streaming down the 17-year-old's face and the pleadings with his brothers. What are you, what are you doing? Please Please no. And they are heartless, cold as stone. And God records all of this. And he has it read to his people in the wilderness. 
in order to say to them, do you see yourselves? Do you, you see where you've come from? I didn't choose you because you're a, you're a gold star family. I didn't choose you because you're, you're some noble characters. Chose you because you're righteous. Chose you because of my love. Look into the mirror and see yourselves. Sons of Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. These are the names of cold, calculating murderers. And in the word we see ourselves. God didn't choose us because we are such great people at loving our neighbor. We like to think sometimes we're so different. I would never do that. But the seed of every single sin is found in our hearts. And if we aren't lowered to say that, then we're not ready to meet the Savior. This is a desperately needy family. And this is our family. But you know what's even more amazing than the grotesque nature of the sinful hearts here is the fact that in God's providence, the victim Joseph will endure all of this and more in order to save his family. When Joseph comes to realize at last as prime minister that all this has happened to him so that he might deliver his family from starvation during a famine. Joseph doesn't take revenge on his brothers, but he seeks their shalom, their peace. As you read that story, all the way through the end here, it's hard to escape the fact that the Lord Jesus goes exactly the same way. The Lord Jesus, who's the rightful heir sent by the Father, who says, here I am, send me who goes to his brothers to seek their shalom. And he comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. They hate him. And their hatred grows. He's despised and rejected. They plot to kill him. They sell him for 30 pieces of shekel. They betray him into the hands of foreigners, to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to kill him. He's stripped of his clothes. All honor taken from him as he hangs bloodied and naked upon the cross. And there's no sympathy and there's no compassion, but his brothers pass him by hurling insults and mocking him. Joseph gives to us an outline, doesn't he? God, through Joseph, paints for us a sketch of the coming Messiah who has to go so low to save us. It's clear the Lord God is in control of all of this. I mean, just think of all the providences that it took to get Joseph into Egypt here. That the father had to naively send Joseph to his brothers at just the right moment when they have now moved on. There just happens to be a man who finds Joseph out in a field who happens to have heard his brothers happen to talk about where they're going next. To these brothers seeing Joseph before his comes, to the brothers putting him in a pit, to the Ishmaelites happening to pass by at the right moment. There's the convergence of all these things. 
Who reigns through all of this? The Lord does. God's in control, orchestrating all of this. And Joseph goes down to Egypt now as an unwilling, right? He is not Joseph's choice. But when you come to the cross, there are a multitude of things all orchestrated by God. And yet at the middle of it all, Jesus Christ, not a helpless victim. Oh, he's pleading and he's, he's crying and he's, he's anguished. But it's not an unwilling victim. It's Christ's free choice. That he's going down for our sakes. All the way to the hell of God to bear our penalty. Doesn't it melt your heart this morning to think about the sufferings of your Lord Jesus Christ, who's willing to come all the way down to seek us, to seek our shalom, to bring to us peace? But finally, the text shows us that this chosen of the Lord here is hopelessly disregarded. Let's look at that thirdly. Sons of Jacob think that they're forever done with Joseph. We got rid of him, just like Christ's enemies thought. We're done with him. And they have to cover their tracks now with their father. So they they dip that that coat in the blood of a goat. And they they bring that that coat to, to Jacob. And they, oh, they're so clever and they're so subtle. They don't lie at all. They just say, ah, I don't know. Is, is this your son's? Jacob instantly recognizes it and is overwhelmed. But what a poetic justice here, right? This Jacob, who had deceived his father Isaac through the blood and meat and skins of a goat, is now deceived by the blood of a goat. But Jacob here goes into a great state of mourning, weeping. In fact, we're told that he will not be consoled. And he says in verse 35, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Father wept for him. And we, we sense that there's something wrong here. Especially as New Testament Christians who know 1 Thessalonians, right? That we, we sorrow, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And yet Jacob grieves here as one who has no hope. He's hopelessly inconsolable. Jacob makes his choice of Joseph a lot more important than God's choice of Joseph. If, if Jacob's choice of, jo- choice of Joseph was, was just to respond to God's choice, then Jacob might have said, as Abraham said, well, I know that God can raise him from the dead. Jacob loves Joseph for the wrong reason. For the wrong reason. And because he's gone, torn by wild animals, he says, there's nothing left for me. I'm going to die crying. I'm going to die weeping. I'm going to die depressed, despairing. But it's not the word of Jacob that will stand, is it? But the word of the Lord will stand. Jacob will not go down to the ground, to the grave, mourning. He will go down to see Egypt, to go see Joseph, but he'll go down to Egypt. He'll go down to Egypt and he'll see that son as the prime minister of Egypt and the one who saves the family from starvation. 
And in reality, you, you begin to understand what's happening here, that, that Jacob is losing his son in the way he wanted him to receive his son back in the way he needs him, right? He's, he's losing his son in the way he wanted him as his favorite to receive him back as the way he needed him, a true deliverer. Joseph is learning something of that as well. You can imagine the 17-year-old scared to death, terrified, heartbroken, carried down to Egypt, and wondering, now, what, what of all these dreams I had? What disappointment? But in it all, of course, the plan of the sovereign covenant Lord is right on course. Nothing is out of line here. Joseph is sold just where God wants him, not into obscurity to go work on a farm somewhere. Nobody ever will see him again. But he's sold to the captain of the guard. He's going to end up in a special prison from which the, the Pharaoh will become acquainted with Joseph. Satan is at work here to stamp out God's people. Satan is at work here to destroy the line of the coming Christ. But God is at work with a greater hand. And he's moving all things to Joseph's exaltation. And the brothers will see what becomes of Joseph's dreams. Now, as you look at this inconsolable grief of a father, Israel, here, aren't you reminded in some ways of the inconsolable grief of the disciples after Christ dies on the cross? That time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, those days of darkness and sad disappointment, and they say, we had thought, we had hoped he was going to be the deliverer. The disciples had their own ideas like Father Jacob had his own ideas about what the son should be. The disciples did not think they needed a bloodied Messiah on a cross. But God was taking Jesus from them in the way they wanted him to give him back to them in the way they needed him. He had to go down to the pit for us, for our sin, destroying the serpent, winning the victory, atoning for our guilt, and rising triumphant to bring us to glory. Strangely enough, the burial clothes in that tomb were not the proof that Jesus had failed, but the evidence of his victory. The blood that was spilled and the holes in his hands and side were not the evidence that he had been victimized and was lost forever, but they were the marks of his victory. Because the path to glory was the path of suffering, and the path to our glory is the path of our loss. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? That the only way Christ is of benefit to us is if he went down, down, down. Probably all, probably all would say we believe that. We believe he had to die on the cross. Do we believe it about all his work in our lives? Have we hopelessly disregarded Jesus because he has not appeared in the way we desired him or in the way we expected him? Has he not come to you in the answer to your prayer, in the way you wanted, the way you expected, the only way you thought he was of benefit to you? Has he not appeared in your way? Not with the power you wanted to see, not with the, the manner you wanted to see, not with the timing you wanted to see? 
If that's how we feel this morning, could it be that God is taking from us what we think we needed to give it back to us in the way that we really needed? That he's taken it from us in the way we wanted to give it back to us in the way that would be the greatest blessing? And have we already embraced that paradox in our own lives? You see, Jesus Christ said, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And so there is no other path to glory but the path of death. Dying to self, confessing sin, giving it all up and saying, Lord, I'm yours. And I have nothing but you. And you're my only righteousness. And you are the king. I am your servant. Those who hang on to their life and keep guarding part of it and holding on to part of it won't confess the sin, won't give this up, won't yield to Christ. Those who won't go down will not be lifted up. The summons of the gospel is to follow Joseph into Egypt, to follow Jesus into the grave. The summons of the gospel is to die to yourself that you may be raised. What a glorious plan it is. It ends, or rather begins here so, so, so sadly, doesn't it? This 17-year-old sold into slavery, but it ends so gloriously. In Egypt, a family's provided for. They won't starve. A family's reconciled. Brothers are broken. But at the other end of the book, even more glorious, the church, united in true love, brothers and sisters in the Lord confessing to each other where they've wronged each other, A people who together have humbled themselves and said, Lord, we're yours. We need you. And a church finally exalted in glory for all eternity. That's the glorious conclusion. Going down is not easy. Going down is painful. Going down requires trusting the Lord when everything seems to be going wrong. But praise be for a Savior who's gone through the pit of hell to lift us up eternally. May our trust be in him. Amen. O gracious Father in heaven, we're humbled by your word. We don't enjoy suffering. We have difficulty with loss. There are great sorrows, Lord, in the loss of a loved one, in the loss of the things that you've given us upon earth the loss of our pride. So many things, Lord, to be lost. We thank you, Lord, for the sure word that we are not losers but more than conquerors through him who loved us. That as we humble ourselves, acknowledging our sin and our great need of the Lord Jesus, that as we're united to him by a true and a living faith, that when Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Father, we pray for the faith to believe and to hold on. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.